Our hope is in him, amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Perhaps you're joining us for the first time, or maybe it's the first time in a long time. We're really glad that you're here to worship with us. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through the book of Galatians, continuing in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word, and we should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we ask that you would meet with us. Lord, today is your day set apart for you, that we might worship and glory in you, that we might see and behold afresh the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would stir faith in us, that you would renew and strengthen us, that you would move us and enable us to live in love as you have called us to. May the wonder of the gospel be brought to life by the power of your spirit. We ask all these things in the name of our Redeemer. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. Have you ever seen a situation where somebody is approaching a door in public space and you can tell they're going to push? And the door on it says, pull. Have you ever watched that moment? I never cease to chuckle inwardly, but of course, outwardly, I try and rush to there to end the complication that this person is encountering. See, there are doors that open only one way. You learn this as a boy growing up. I remember walking into a friend's house, and as we were escorted into the place where his, dating myself, Atari, was located, little family room, cubby room with a really small TV that we played Pong for hours and hours. Who knew people could be that fascinated by such terrible graphics? by today's standard. But as I walked into this friend's home, the door was not from the top of the opening to the bottom of the opening. In fact, it probably occupied about 40% of the space, and there was no handle on it. There was no knob to turn or, or handle to pull. In fact, it was kind of two doors meshing against each other. If you remember the 80s, you might remember this moment. Scene doors like these. But as I walked in, I stood amazed that they could both be pushed forward 
to walk in, or these magical hinges had been placed upon them, and it could come towards you as well, which I immediately learned as I was not as close to my friend as I should have been to enter the room. So Kevin got a knock on the head, and you might think that explains a lot. See, the reality is, often in our culture, people love to say that everything can work multiple ways. Everybody loves to say, oh, stop living in that either or mantra. You have to take on the uh, not either or, but... What's the contrast? Both and, right? Both and. I remember years ago, this is like 20 years ago or more, sitting in a, a situ, uh, deli in, on CNU's campus. I'm in disco. That's what we called it. And it was a place where you could pick up quick fast food, little Stone Willie's pizzas and stuff were in there. It was awesome. Chick-fil-A, it was awesome. So they had these round tables, and I was sitting there with three college students, and I was listening to them try to explain to me what postmodernism really meant. And one of its foundational principles, according to these freshman boys, was that the, the life was both and, not either or. And I sat, and I let them go on and on and on, and when they were done, 15, 20 minutes later, I said, oh, wow. Wow, thanks. I had not known this. I did not know that it was either you live in a way of adding both and to everything as a way of moving, or you live in the archaic either or. Sometimes our young adults think they know something that they don't know, just like the rest of us older folks, amen? But it is true of our culture that we don't like either or. We don't like exclusivity. We like inclusivity, yes? This is a mantra of our culture. They want us to compare virtues of different ways of living. They want us to compare the virtue of living by any set of principles as long as you have a set of principles. It's the having that matters to most of the young in our generation as opposed to the quality and truthfulness of the principles by which we should live. So here, all the way back in Paul's day, the cultural battles and the theological battles and the philosophical battles were just as chaotic at times. And the Apostle Paul is seeing some of that chaos 
enter in to the church life and vitality in the churches of Galatia that he planted years earlier. So we remember that the theme for this entire epistle is about the gospel of grace and freedom. Grace and freedom. And we have sung the chorus together week after week after week that the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God has done for us. And in the development of retraining and rebuking these churches, warning them about the insidious and odious nature of the teaching these false brothers have brought in. Paul is giving a very strong contrast between two ways of living. Two ways to live. The first that we will explore today is that I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The principle of living here is based on believing. Not doing, but believing, trusting. You are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and in no other way, or you seek to be justified by works of the law. That's the comparison. That's the contrast. Those are the two principal ways of seeking God's favor and approval. In other words, how can I gain God's favor is a question every human on earth who has ever, is now, or will ever live. That's the question they should ask. How can I gain God's favor? In other words, how can I be in right standing with a holy God? And so we explore further these two contrary ways to live. Believing or doing. And we've seen from as recent as verse 10 last week that there's no such thing as performance-based Christianity. Doing is not an option for us because we do not keep the law in all its perfections. Therefore, God's curse falls on every individual who fails to keep the law of God, fails to keep it completely, fails to keep it consistently, fails to keep it constantly. And we concluded our time last week with the conclusion that the law of God cannot bless us unto salvation. Does not mean that there's something wrong with the law. Paul tells us that the law itself is good, and it is. 
Without the law, we would not know nor recognize our sin. But the law of God cannot bless the sinner. The law of God can only curse because of sin upon the sinner. And because of the mystical union between us and our first father, Adam, his fall is imputed to us. We've talked about this. The fall of Adam is our representation. Adam, our representative. So part of what this means then is that we are born with a sin nature, this flesh that governs and leads and corrupts who we are and what we are to do. We talked about this last week. This is the mighty doctrine of total depravity. Not utter depravity, we clarified that. But total depravity, every aspect of our being affected, infiltrated, corroded, perverted. So how do we, who inherit the fall of Adam, find favor with a holy God whose law demands perfection? That's the question. If the law of God can only curse sinners, then the law of God cannot bless us. And if the law of God cannot bless us, how can we receive God's blessing? This is the question. How can we receive God's blessing? How can we receive his favor? In other words, how can a lawbreaker be justified? This is where we pick up the conversation for verse 11. Paul says in the first part, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, the law can never be the gateway to that gain of justification. The law of God is powerless here. So when we see this word evident at the beginning of verse 11, Paul's saying to the reader or to the listener, this is a settled truth because of what we have just studied and seen and argued. It is Paul's previous argument, specifically in verse 10, but also in direct reference to chapter 2, verse 16. That's the argument. No one is justified before a holy God by their effort, by their merit, by their work, by their obedience, by their allegiance, by their desire to be obedient even. So fundamentally, justification cannot come by works of the law. In other words, doing won't work. Doing, in all its effort, in all its desire, 
It cannot do what you are asking it to do. In other words, it's a push-pull. Only one way will work. Only one way will open the gates of glory. Justification must come by faith. This is the contrast. Justification must come by faith. In other words, it is our trusting. It is our believing. Machen even refers to it as our receiving that is clear here. Justification does not come by works. It comes by faith. Not any faith, not the concept of faith, but faith in its object being the life and death and vindication in resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Justification comes by faith in him, by our union with him. So these two ways, law and faith, works and trusting, doing versus believing, they are mutually exclusive. So they operate as opposing principles. Either we trust God to justify us through faith, or we try to justify ourselves by works. There's no hybrid here. No matter what the church of Rome or your buddy at dinner says, there's no hybrid here unto salvation. Christians should have a relationship with good works. The reformers used to say that we are saved by faith, but not by a faith that is alone. That faith enables, frees us, not unto salvation, but unto living and loving as Christ does, having him formed in us, us in him. But there is no hybrid access to the throne room of glory. These two principal ways of living are irreconcilable. So stop trying to reconcile. You can't. You won't. So Paul is building his case. And the case is that if works don't work, what does? And here he's going to quote Habakkuk 2.4. Let's see it in Paul's pen. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He continues, the second half of 11, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is a quotation of, or a principled reference to, Habakkuk 2.4. So let's see that verse in its entirety. Habakkuk 2.4, behold... His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. At the end, you might 
want to translate it faithfulness. His faithfulness, his faith. So for the context, what's Paul doing here? Paul is reaching back into this prophetic word to try and help us, help the Galatian churches and the people in those churches to understand where life is found. Is it found in your obedience? Is it found in your accomplishments? So let's draw back a little bit and and see this context in its larger scope. In Habakkuk 2, we see that Yahweh had already carried away the northern kingdom of Israel off into captivity. So when Habakkuk is writing, the northern kingdom, remember Israel split into two nations. The northern kingdom became pagan quicker than Judah did. So you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, I know from personal experience over many, many years that sometimes it can be frustrating to read in the Old Testament because you don't know if the word Israel is direct referencing the northern kingdom as Israel or all of Israel as Israel. Do you see what I just did? So is this northern Israel? And sometimes in my old Bibles, I used to put a, a capital N and a dot and then an I as a way of reminding myself, all right, the context here is the northern kingdom of Israel, not like the nation of Israel in its fullest sense. So here, the northern kingdom, Israel, N-I, is carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, with Jerusalem inside, are being threatened with an invasion and exile from Babylon. This invasion and exile looms over the southern kingdom of Judah as Habakkuk is writing. And the, the prophet here is complaining that Israel is no longer a holy nation. Remember, weeks ago, we talked about that moment where Moses and the people of God are spread out on the two mountains on the edge of the promised land. And they're reading back and forth the blessings and curses of the end of Deuteronomy. And they end with, we vow to obey these commands. They vowed obedience as they stood on the edge of the promised land. They vowed obedience and submission to God, their deliverer, and to the law of God. But when we're here, as Habakkuk is writing, they had long since abandoned this commitment. And they lived wickedly, adopting the practices and purposes of the world they were supposed to be a beacon of light to. This statement in Habakkuk is that is basically trying to help them understand 
that life is found through faith. There's a remnant of God's people always. Hear this blessed truth. There is always a remnant of God's people. He has favor upon his people, small or large. There is a faithful, mm, let's call it a faith-filled people. So Habakkuk in this moment isn't writing, asking and warning and pleading that Judah needed to redouble their efforts, to renew their commitment to obedience, to resubmit and work harder, resolve, commit, rededicate. This is not Habakkuk's instruction. In other words, he's not offering them a work harder mantra in some kind of last ditch effort to avert Babylonian exile. Instead, this faithful remnant in the southern kingdom of Judah was being told to live by faith. Faith not in their own performance, not in their own history in the sense of their own accomplishments, but rather live by faith. Faith in the covenant promises of God that he will bring about his purposes. But this construct also condemns the Babylonians, the invading horde who will come. It condemns them for their pride in conquering Jerusalem and exiling the southern kingdom. In the same way, that Judah and Israel should live by faith, so too should Babylon or Assyria or Egypt or Russia or America or any nation. For the gospel is for the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people group. So the Babylonians are condemned for their pride. Instead of trusting Yahweh, the Babylonians also lived by works. They didn't promise nor attempt to obey the law of God, but they did attempt to live by their own merits, to live by works, to live by effort, which is itself the core of proud Self-confidence. No American knows anything about proud self-confidence, right? None of us first look at our actions, or probably even more often than that, the actions of others and make judgment upon them. Instead of trusting in themselves... Judah and Babylon must trust God for salvation in the life to come. 
Can you see why Paul is basing his argument in chapter 3? That the argument is centered around this idea in Habakkuk 2.4. Salvation doesn't come through human effort. It comes by faith. In other words, salvation doesn't come by doing. Salvation comes by trusting and receiving. This is a verse that is very, very beloved in Reformed circles, dating all the way back to Luther. This is the verse that the Lord used to break forth the streams of grace in Luther's heart that overflowed into his life. See, there was a season of depression and illness You could call it a cloud over Luther's head. A darkness pressuring and pushing upon his consciousness. And he kept repeating this verse to himself, we're told. Over and over and over again. Live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. For a very long time, Luther kept saying the mantra over and over and over again until it broke forth and shined the light of the gospel upon him, in him, and thankfully through him. How are we here gathered on this morning If Luther doesn't learn the beauties and wonders of the righteous shall live by faith, by faith, live by faith. Can you see why Paul is basing his argument here on this verse? Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right. It's not upright within him. But the righteous live by his faith. Do you trust God when there's no other way? Do you trust God as a last resort? Closer to abdicating all hope and responsibility? Do you move into a moment and basically say, I can't do it. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work. I had a vision and I was following it. I had a purpose, and it was thwarted. I remember in the history of our own church, we were trying to move from attending on Sundays at Gildersleeve Middle School in Newport News to being able to lease our own space in a warehouse in city center. Thimble Shoals. If you were there, you know that the way was closed. We did all the legwork. We did all of the petitioning. The space wasn't zoned for a church. It was zoned for business and industrial purposes. And when I talked to a city manager, they laughed when I said, well, we are in building. We're trying to build the kingdom of God. 
And he said, I can't give you a certificate for that. It's an industrial effort. Bunch of 20-year-olds and me in my early 30s trying to do what we were way unprepared to do. And the Lord had led the right people at the right time to join the church and help guide us and lead us. Scott Borges will always be on my Mount Rushmore of providential comings and goings. But we stood in the courts of Newport News asking for a simple permit so that we could rent 4,500 square feet in a currently unused warehouse. And as we stood, an army of people behind rised benches denied us unanimously. It was like nine nothing. And in doing so, they literally laughed in our face. I'd never been so discouraged in all my years of ministry to that point. So, battle wasn't lost. We were applying for this conditional use permit, and in that application, it had to actually become, come before the mayor and the vice mayor and some other representatives. So, literally, I am in the car driving to this moment where it will be officially dead, the vision, the effort, the time, the money spent trying to do this, I'm in the car, and I pick up Brent Valet, and he climbs in, and we're driving down to Newport News, and, you know, he's a counselor, so he looked at me and was like, what's wrong? <laughs> you know, I have such a poker face with my emotions. What's wrong? And I said, bro, we are going to get licked. We're going to stand up with our tiny little ask, and they're going to beat us down with a giant gavel. You have no idea what is coming. And Brent was like, okay. But we worship the God who raises the dead. I don't see the issue. I was so mad at him <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> I was. How dare you try to inject hope? <laughs> My hide still hurts. And it was on TV. It was broadcast to the whole city. Not that anybody watched or cared besides us. But we go. And to my utter humbling and shock, the vice mayor looked at our application and said, yeah, I think we should totally approve this. What did, I literally leaned over to Scott, who was on my left, and I was like, what did she just say? And he whispered back that the Lord is here. Oh, guys, stop stabbing a guy. We want everybody to work in city center. We made a way for them to live in city center, to eat in city center. Why wouldn't we want them to pray in city center? But there was no way. And the Lord made a way. And there was a lot of paperwork and back and forth. And we had to go back to the people who had zero nined us 
and it still only passed 5-4, with the mayor saying, make this happen. Four still stood against. But then the paperwork was all better set up, and we went in, and it was unanimous among the city council that we should have a church there. Not only did we worship there for years, we handed it over to Catalyst so that they could also worship there for that season. Here's what I'm saying. Do you trust God when there is no way? When you think that the sign says pull and God says, I got it, push. It's not that there are many ways, there aren't. Jesus in Gethsemane knows that moment. If there is any other way, take this cup. The righteous live by faith, not works. We are commanded by God to trust him, trust his promises, trust the merits of his son. This is why Paul bases his argument around Habakkuk 2.4, that we would live and love in such a way and that it would have the effect in us of living out what's already been declared of us, true of us. So, it's not just Luther who loves this verse, and it's not that Paul only uses this verse once. Some years later, Paul will write in another letter, at the very beginning, establishing the theme for the entire letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The theme of Romans is Habakkuk 2.4 lived out with the fullness of Christology present. And it's not as though Paul is twisting or grabbing something that wasn't central and making it central. Listen to the words of our Savior in John 6. Jesus is engaged in his ministry. He's fed the 5,000 with his bread and fish. And the disciples are hyped. And the moment of controversy has risen Jesus is saying and doing things that everybody's talking about, but not everybody appreciates. So the question of how do we live in relationship to God, how are we justified before his sight, we are led to the question that the disciples ask Jesus. This does not come from the Pharisees, even if it was their question. This comes from his disciples. John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. The disciples ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Did you catch both do 
And did you hear the plural in works? So they ask a plural question, assuming that Jesus is going to clarify or deepen or strengthen or broaden their understanding of the way of life as obedient submission to the law of God. That's not the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus gives the contrast. Jesus answered them, this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Salvation is not by works, but by believing and receiving Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. That's the principle of grace. That you are saved not by your effort, not by your merit, not by your niftiness, not by your sincerity, but by the life, obedient life, by death, the atoning death, and the vindication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, all religions are not equally valid or equally true. In fact, if you sit down for half an hour and look at the main principles of all of the world's religions, philosophies, Christ and Christianity will stand alone in its methodology. For no other religion has a doctrine of atonement as we do. But there is another principle way to live. Paul's going to remind them of that in verse 12. Hear Paul, but the righteous, excuse me, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, the other possibility is that we are justified by works of the law. This is, once again, the emphasis on doing. See, the Jews who had infiltrated the church, the false brethren from Jerusalem, weren't saying Jesus isn't important. What they were saying was that in addition to Christ, you need to live as a Jew. And the symbol of that is, of course, circumcision. Much more on that to come. But here, Paul draws the contrast between faith and the law. The one who does shall live by them. This is a reference to Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In this sense then, the law is not for believers. It's only for doers. Salvation by works of the law is contrary to faith. For salvation by works of the law means 
that one who does the law will live by his obedience. That's what Schreiner says. Listen to this quote again. The law is not for believers. It's only for doers. Salvation by works of the law is contrary to faith. For salvation by works of the law means that the one who does the law will live by his obedience. In other words, the principle of the law is living by doing. If you, quote, do the law, close quote, you will legally be righteous and therefore you will live. That's the principle of the law. But what's the problem of the law? You can't live up to it, right? The problem of the law of God and living in this principle is that we can't keep the law. We can't keep it completely or consistently and let alone constantly. Seeking to earn salvation through law keeping is a fool's errand. You will never get what is promised, which is a good way to expose idolatry as well. It does not deliver what it promises. So how do we understand this then? These two ways to live, one of which is already off limits to you. For you have already failed the demand of the law. How then does a holy God give favor to you? How do you gain favor in an absolute or total sense? Ultimately, there's only one way for sinners like you and me to live. It must be by faith. Faith in the one who did what we cannot do. Faith in the one who suffered in our place. Faith in the Father's receiving of the Son's sacrifice that his blood actually does what the blood of bulls and goats can never do. Atone for sin. Without the shedding of blood, the book of Hebrews tells us. There's no forgiveness of sins. So what's the witness of this text? How do we theologically understand this? We see it this way. The way of the law, works-based life, requires perfect obedience. The way of the law requires perfect obedience. The way of faith requires trusting in the only covenant keeper. That what is his is yours. And what is yours becomes his. In other words, are you justified by faith in Jesus Christ? Trust Christ, believe Christ as he in his own words said? As he walked the earth? What are the works that God requires? One work, singular. Trust. Believe. Believe in the one in whom he sent. 
That is Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. And that's why we will celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together. Because we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Again, I think we agree there's no such thing as performance-based Christianity unless you are talking about and trusting in Jesus' performance, Jesus' obedience, Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, the only way to gain God's favor is to have faith in the one who is favored. And let what, his, what is his become yours and yours his. Trusting in Jesus' obedient life, atoning death, vindicated resurrection is the only way to be in right standing with God. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that it is by faith that we live. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done what we could not do, that you have developed and submitted to and lived out perfectly the obligations of the law that we have denounced, that we have rejected, that we cannot measure up against. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would stir us with the joy of your coming, In this Advent season, would you lead us to love and trust the power of a kingly child who grows up, who's put to death as the king of the Jews. May his life and obedience, the source of all blessedness, be ours. And we thank you and trust you that our cursedness The sum of all of our curses was laid upon Christ and that he emptied your wrath perfectly. Oh, Father in heaven, give us joy in the grace of the gospel, in the beauty and wonder of our risen Savior. And may we endeavor to trust and live as becomes your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people agree.